Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Gray, and welcome to the Teaching Series Podcast. I am a follower of Jesus, and I find the Bible to be absolutely amazing and love helping people experience it anew. Because in my 12 plus years of teaching the Bible professionally, I've learned that most of us have never been taught how to engage the Bible the way it was intended in its original context, and we are missing out on so much. Because when the biblical text is set in its context, it becomes more relevant, compelling, and transformational than we ever imagined. My desire is for all people to experience the Bible this way and to see Jesus at the center of it all. It's to this end that I created the teaching series, which is a weekly video series that explores some aspect of the Bible in its original context and then talks through how we can apply it well to our own context. This podcast is the audio version of those highly visual video teachings, which can be found at walkingthetext.com. So if you find an episode particularly helpful, I'd encourage you to check out the video version as well. And please feel free to rate and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and let's jump into the episode. There are so many stories in the Bible that mess with you, that you have to wrestle with in order to try to understand what in the world is going on here. And one such story is recorded in Mark chapter 9, and it is so important to understand what Jesus is doing in this story to be able to help people, especially in their time of need. And even in the midst of this prolonged pandemic, I believe that if we can grasp what Jesus is doing in this story, we will be able to serve one another well, as well as anyone who is ever going through a trying time. So I mentioned the story is in Mark chapter 9, but I wanted to show you that it shows up in both Matthew and Luke as well. And this is a story of Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy. It does not show up in the Gospel of John. It shows up here in what are called the Synoptic Gospels. And if you know anything about the Gospels, Mark is the shortest, which means his stories are shorter typically than what is recorded in Matthew or Luke. But the story we're going to look at in this episode is twice as long as either what's recorded in Matthew or Luke, which is just really cool when Mark wants us to see some additional details in this important story. So here's the context. Uh, Jesus is in the northern part of the country, uh, most likely north of the Sea of Galilee. I say most likely because the transfiguration has just occurred and he's coming down from the mountain. Um, Initially, the tradition held that that took place at Mount Tabor. Most scholars now believe it was Mount Hermon here north of the Sea of Galilee because the story right before it takes place at Caesarea Philippi. So it makes more sense, but regardless, Jesus is coming down from the mountain. He has Peter, James, and John, his three inner disciples who were with Jesus on the mountain, but the other disciples were not. And Jesus is meeting up with the other disciples and this This is what we read in Mark chapter 9, verse 14 and following. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? 
Jesus asked. Now, let's just pause for a quick moment. It seems like Jesus is saying to the disciples, what are you arguing about with the religious leaders? And what they're arguing about doesn't seem to be what's going to unfold. It's like in the midst of Jesus's question, this guy in the crowd like steps forward and this father says this, says, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Ah, oh, could you imagine this being your reality if you're a parent? I mean, imagine you're this father or you're a mother, or maybe if you aren't a parent, I know you can jump into the shoes and and get a sense for what's going on here. I mean, this is an absolute nightmare. I mean, can you imagine someone you love being slammed to the ground, foaming at the mouth, gnashing their teeth, and you have to stand there helpless. You can't do anything. And this isn't the first time it's happened. Like it's happened time and time again. And it's like every single time it occurs, another chunk from your heart gets ripped out. I mean, this is the reality of this father, and it's why he has brought his son to Jesus. But Jesus was up on the mountain, so he asks his disciples to, to, to cast it out, and they're not able to. And so Jesus says this. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's like Jesus is frustrated with his disciples that they haven't figured out how to deal with a situation like this. Jesus has been training them in so many different ways, uh, but this one's beyond at this point. And so Jesus then says, well, bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. So now this nightmare that the father had described to Jesus of what they had gone through is now a reality playing out right in front of them. And notice what Jesus' response is. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And the father responds, from childhood, it is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Like how bizarre for Jesus to respond this way. I mean, in the midst of this cane, chaos, this frustration, this suffering, this pain that is playing out, Jesus stands there and he asks a question. Now, as you read on from the story, you're going to find out that Jesus is going to heal the boy, which makes me want to ask, like, Jesus, why not heal first, ask questions later? But instead, he asks a question. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, we'll notice what kind of a question this is. It's a question of care. It's a question of concern. It's a question of longing, of longing to better understand what this father has gone through. Which, if I just had to summarize what I believe is going on here in this moment, I would say this. 
that Jesus's first impulse isn't to fix the pain, to fix the problem, but to feel the pain. Yes, Jesus could heal him in that moment, and he eventually does. But there's something about Jesus entering more deeply into the situation, even though he is doing it in the midst of this nightmare playing out before them which is so cool to understand this about Jesus. That I think this story isn't just about what Jesus can do, he drives out the demon, but what Jesus is like. Like he wants to feel what this father is going through, that Jesus is interested in our pain, in our frustrations, in our heartaches, in our struggles. Uh, Perhaps you could even say even before he wants to fix them. And what's interesting is that when Jesus asks the boy's father this question, the father's answer is like part and parcel the same impulse that Jesus had. Check this out. From childhood, he answered, and has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. Again, can you even imagine having to go through this? But then the father says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He asks for two things here, and notice what he leads with. He says, take pity on us. Now, this word pity is such an amazing word in the Greek. In fact, in part three of the Good Samaritan, we talked about this word because it's the same word that was used to talk about what the Good Samaritan did to the man who fell in need. So some of you may be going, I've heard this word recently. Yes, you have. The word to take pity is splunkizomai. Okay, try saying that 10 times fast. And it is a word that means to have compassion, to take pity, or to have empathy. Now, this word, splunkizomai, is derived from another Greek word, and that word is splunknon. And that word means inward parts, entrails, or bowels. Like, they believed like the seat of emotion was in your gut. And so when he says, take pity on us, it's like the father is saying to Jesus, I want you to understand our situation so well that it is gut-wrenching for you, which is astounding, isn't it? That the father's first impulse isn't for Jesus to fix the pain, but to feel the pain. Now, yes, he's going to go on and say, and help us, i.e., Jesus, will you fix the situation? Will you heal my boy? And Jesus will go on to do that. But it is astounding to me that he leads with the pity, the feeling. It's like the father says, Jesus, I just want you to understand, to join me in this. And then I want you to help us out. Which this story is so loaded. I mean, we could do a five-part series on just this story alone. And you can read the few verses that come after this when Jesus heals the boy. But there is a tension in this story. And you've already picked up on it. We've already highlighted it. And it's the tension between feeling versus 
fixing. That so often when we encounter a situation, we want to try and fix it especially if it is an uncomfortable situation or if it's a hard situation or we're encountering someone who is going through great pain, we want to fix it. We don't think first and foremost about joining them or feeling with them what they're going through. Now, for some of us who are watching this, we're kind of like, okay, I can kind of see that. Probably for many of you women who are watching or listening to this, you're like, oh yeah, all the time I have to tell, you know, my guy, I just want you to listen. In fact, Jason Headley, a number of years ago, did a short clip where he just captured the brilliance of what so many of us have experienced. Watch this with me. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just... Don't! Try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I... Come on now, that is brilliant. My sweaters are snagged, all of them. I mean, how many of us have had a conversation like this where, you know what, you go, hey, some things need to be fixed. If the nail is in the head, the nail needs to come out. But so often, especially in relationships, like the other person doesn't want us to first and foremost fix things. They want us to feel it to listen to them long enough to join them in what they're going through. And so oftentimes that feels very counterintuitive, um, especially if for some of us, like what we do on a regular basis for our work is we are problem solvers. It's so easy to get into that mode that we carry that into relationships and other aspects of our lives where we just need to pause long enough to go, is this a situation where, yeah, something needs to be fixed and we just need to fix it right now, or do I need to feel things first? Because in some cases, some things can't be fixed. Now, this is a, a recent photo of my crew, and Denyan, who is the oldest of our four kids, is 12. And before we had Denyan, 
my wife Shallon and I went through just the uh, incredible pain of a second trimester miscarriage. And I know for me, like, I didn't know how to deal with that situation. I never had a conversation with anybody about a miscarriage before. I didn't realize how many people went through that pain and just didn't know how to navigate it. And one of the things that we experienced in the midst of encountering others is that they didn't really know how to help us or even talk with us in the midst of this situation. That tension between feeling versus fixing was front and center. In fact, many times we would have people say to us like, um, hey, Romans 8.28, like all things work together for good, which I know is true, but sometimes the truth isn't helpful. And people would say things like, oh, you guys are young. You're going to have no problems, you know, getting pregnant and having kids. And I just remember those moments where I just wanted to tell people very kindly, please shut up. Like your words are not helpful here. They may be true, but they're not helpful. And what I began to recognize is that the uncomfortableness of our situation caused them to want to put a band-aid on it, to move through it, to try and fix it. And one of the things that I began to recognize and learn is that this wasn't an abnormal response for people. In fact, Dan Allender in his book, Leading with a Limp, writes this. He says, psycholinguists, those who study how we talk with each other, tell us that it is rare for a person to ask more than two meaningful questions of another person, especially if that other person is in distress. We want to help to quickly resolve the struggle, but we don't want to suffer someone else's helplessness or confusion. And we experience that with a number of people. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we had people who are willing to feel with us, that were willing to enter in with our pain, not trying to fix it, not trying to code it, not trying to put a nice phrase on the conversation, but they would just show up with us and sit with us in silence. Or they would bring over a meal or on one occasion, these flowers were delivered and it was a note that just said, we are with you. And it was such an amazing gift that we actually kept the flowers and the vase as something we see often as a reminder that we need to sit, we need to feel with someone long before we need to fix. In fact, there's a, a moment in Job, you know, Job has lost everything. and He's got these three friends that come and they're trying to, you know, figure out the situation and they're trying to talk through it. And they're coming up with all these reasons why Job has experienced what he is experiencing. And there's a moment where Job gets so frustrated that he says this in Job 13, 5. He says to those friends, if only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. That more often than not, it is our silence and our presence 
that is infinitely more powerful than any words. It's an opportunity to feel rather than to fix. And it's hard to do because our nature is to fix. But what I believe Jesus is inviting us to do is to mimic his impulse from the story in Mark 9. That especially in the midst of this challenging, prolonged pandemic season, where for many of us, we are experiencing that exhaustion. Like we thought this thing was curbed and now, you know, new restrictions are put in place and things are changing even more. And we're like, we never dreamt we would be in this for this long. It's easy in our own exhaustion and frustration to just pass over somebody else's struggles and frustrations as well, because we just want this thing to be over. Uh, But the same is also true when we're dealing with people who are going through a hard time, and maybe this isn't in the midst of a pandemic season. And what they really want is for us to sit with them, to listen to them, to hear them, to feel what is going on in their lives, to empathize with them, not just try to fix the situation. Now, true, there are times where the right response is to try to fix something as soon as possible. But what I have learned is that more often than not, we need to feel before we fix. And I believe that this is a significant concept that if we can embrace, that if we can emulate in our own lives, that we can love and serve other people well in their time of need. And so may we be people who feel before we fix, that we pause long enough to sit in the tension and the pain that someone else is going through, to let them know that we love them so much, we're willing to sit in the uncomfortableness of it, and to let them know we are willing to journey with them. Well, friends, thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. May we live out this story well in our lives.